Hello and welcome to Confabulation, the podcast. I'm Matt Goldberg. And I'm Deb Van Slet. Welcome to another episode. And we've got another great story for you all. We've got a story from Keith Sari. Uh, he told this story in September of 2022 for the Summer Love event. Although it's funny, he it really is... Uh, the summer love aspect, not not the summer romance story. This is really a story about that fleeting feeling, those fleeting moments of summer. I was really grateful for that. We had a night of wonderful romantic stories, and then this one was more uh, romantic for that departed youth. And even maybe the love of summer? Keith is the producer and host of the Volume Knob podcast, a true life storytelling show in which people share a story of the song that saved their lives features stories from a number of storytellers we've had on our show, as well as people from around the world of storytelling, uh, talking about the important songs, the important stories of their lives. So do check that out. We've linked to it in the podcast notes. We're going to introduce you to uh, Keith's story and, uh, well, and listen for the song. Yeah, he worked it in there. He definitely did. That's his corner, and I love it. He did get that song in there. So yeah, we have Keith's story from September 2022. And then uh, I have a brief chat with Keith to talk a little bit about storytelling and the Volume Knob Project. My story starts in the late spring of 1988. And I am a teenage misfit. And not in the sort of James Deany kind of way. Like, I mean, literally nothing fits. Um, not my clothes, which, because my family is poor and buys them used, they kind of hang off me at odd angles. And not my personality, which, because I grew up in a small industrial town and have this personality which manages to be both bookish and unbearably loud at the same time. Um, See, it's falling. (laughs) The short answer is, because of those things, I don't have many friends. But what I have is a radio. And it's silver plastic, and I bought it at Sears in the catalog with my paper route money. And on the nights when it's cold and there aren't any clouds, I can hear the stations from as far away as Vancouver, about 800 kilometers to the south of where I grew up. And the way that music sort of comes in over the static and over the distance, it sounds to me kind of like, kind of like a message from a place that I've always wanted to be. That summer, I've accepted a job at a summer camp. I'm gonna be a counselor, and that doesn't fit either. (laughs) Because I am, and still am, the least outdoorsy person anyone in this room has ever met. (laughs) I prefer to to think of myself as a great indoorsman. Uh, I like to say that the great outdoors is the space between the front door of my house and the front door of the restaurant. (laughs) 
Um, but that's okay. I'm confident that this is going to be the right place for me for two reasons. The first is it's not sort of your typical summer camp. It's called Naramata Center in a town called Naramata on Okanagan Lake, not far from Penticton, BC. And it's kind of a resort. Like we as the counselors will stay in a dorm where there are real beds and real bathrooms and there's a cafeteria. We are not going to be roughing it, which is good. The second reason I'm confident is because I had spent a weekend there last fall uh, at kind of a teen churchy retreat thing, and it was fantastic. There was a dance where they encouraged us to wear ethnic dress. <laughs> so as a Celtic mutt, I borrowed my dad's kilt, and I went to this dance, and I went and I danced like a crazy person. And instead of making fun of me, the other kids thought I was fun. And so I made friends. When I got to the camp, it was essentially what I had hoped it would be. We were part of a group of kids, and we all got along really great. Don't get me wrong, I was still the dorky guy. I wasn't near as cool as Darren Dill Pickle. It says a lot about the social ordering at a church summer camp that the coolest kid was named Darren Dill Pickle. Dill, as everyone called him, was cool though. Um, he was blessed with a surfer's tan and rosy cheeks and kind of a laconic charm. The girls loved him. He also had what seemed to me to be an absolutely endless supply of designer clothes. You know, like Maui and Sons and Ocean Pacific, ask your parents. Um, he said his parents uh, owned a surf shop in Nanaimo. And he said that his dresser drawers back home were so full of designer t-shirts that he often didn't even have time to take them out of the plastic. At any rate, any time I stood beside him, I was really conscious of the length of my limbs and the angles of my joints. Despite that though, I did feel part of something. I did feel like I was surrounded by friends and that's because I was included at times, even when it wasn't easy to be included. The one night when everyone went out skinny dipping, for example, everyone knew that I couldn't swim, but I was still invited. And so I appointed myself DJ. I borrowed my friend, my roommates, Jason's ghetto blaster, and I went down to the dock with a few of my favorite tapes. Grapes of Wrath, and The Cure, and New Order, Ask Your Parents. <laughs> and it was perfect. The sky was clear, and it was warm, and there was the sound of my friends in the water, and they were laughing, and splashing, and flirting, and everything went fine until I hit record instead of pause. And I didn't notice for about 20 seconds. 
even as the summer went on, even Dill and I became really, really close. Um, I remember one night near the end of our tenure as camps counselors, he took me aside and he said, I've written some songs and I want you to hear them. I went, wow, cool. Um, so he took his 12-string guitar and we went over to the uh, benches in front of the cafeteria and he took his 12-string guitar out and he sang in this voice that's, you know, when you're 19 and you're sort of in that space between being grown up and not being grown up, so it was kind of reedy but on the borders of being deep. <laughs> and he sang, if you could read my mind, love, what a tale my thoughts could tell. Just like an old time movie about a ghost in a wishing well. And I thought, oh my God, this guy is so talented. <laughs> I was in awe. This is, this is the coolest person I've ever met. And he's got all of this songwriting talent. And he is my friend. Um, coming home was hard, as you can imagine. It's difficult to be surrounded by friends for as long as I was surrounded by friends, and then to go back to being lonely, which I was. It's also hard, and those of you who laughed at the melody will know, it's hard to have a truth, a warm truth that you hold, get taken away from you. So the moment at which that truth was taken away from me, I was listening to the CBC on that radio that I talked to you about. It was probably Zosky or something. <laughs> Ask your parents. Um, and I heard a non-reedy, non-teenager's voice. It was a deep baritone singing, If you could read my mind, love, what a tale the thoughts would tell. Just like a paperback novel, the kind the drugstores sell. It turned out that If You Could Read My Mind was not actually written by a 19-year-old <laughs> whose parents earned a, owned a surf shop in Nanaimo, British Columbia, but by a grown-ass, middle-aged Gordon Lightfoot <laughs> who was singing about the dissolution of his first marriage. And obviously, I, I felt betrayed, and I felt kind of stupid. But most of all, I felt sad. Because as I was sitting there, feeling as accepted as I ever had in my entire life, the guy that I thought was the coolest, the guy that I thought was effortlessly surrounded by people who were his friends, didn't feel like he could be himself. And I felt that way every time I thought of that summer. But I also thought of it every single time I put on my New Order tape. <laughs> the one that about two minutes and 30 seconds into True Faith <laughs> had a 20 second interruption <laughs> with the sounds of my friends splashing and flirting and laughing in the water of Okanagan Lake. 
it always sounded to me like a message floating in from far away from a place that I'd always wanted to be. Thank you. Keith, thank you so much for being here today. I wanted to talk to you about storytelling for a long time because, well, you've come at this art form from a, diff- a very different place than I have. Um, I remember the first time I was, it was suggested that I get in touch with you was to talk a little bit about your podcast. But before we talk about Volume Knob, I'd love to know what, what first hooked you into storytelling? What, what got you into this medium? It's interesting you should ask that because I feel like I kind of backed into it. Like I, I had taken um, storytelling classes before as an extension. I think a lot of people sort of, they get into improv and improv theaters have storytelling classes. And I took a great class with Jeff Gandell, who's a local uh, storytelling um, teacher and performer here in uh, Montreal. He's also a musician. Um, and I'd taken that course and I'd done some performing. Um, but when I set out to do the podcast, it wasn't specifically at the time, at the time of launch, uh, I wasn't thinking of it as a personal storytelling thing. I'm trained as a journalist. And so I wanted people to tell stories about their lives and, you know, we'll talk about it without, you said, let's not talk about it from the, from this podcast, but it's, it's interesting for me because I initially, this whole wave of three years or so of, of, really being obsessive about storytelling did not start out with a with a I want to tell personal stories approach it was more I want to tell stories and I envision them through my journalistic lens which is how I'm trained I have a bachelor of journalism and I used to freelance radio so I I wanted to make radio and over time Mm -hmm. in searching out guests for the show I sort of gravitated to storytellers because they're the people who really understand how to um, how to formulate their um, their lives into things with a beginning, middle, and end, things with a conflict, which help make for good podcasting and good radio. And so, um, it's funny. A lot of my process as a producer um, is not. Like, I think it's it's somewhat different than than what other storytelling producers like the team at Confabulation do because it it started as a process that was almost a journalistic process. It was started as a process where let me sit down with you as as a performer and make sure that your story has a beginning and middle and an end. Let's pre-interview. Let's make sure that everything is structured. It wasn't it wasn't based on the assumption that people would come to me with a completed story and I would help them improve it. It was more like. Um, treating them as you would a journalistic source and you told me that this happened in your life so let's tease our way through it together um so that's that's uh you know that's to answer the question that you've asked more directly but i think through meeting all of these fantastic performers and storytellers including yourself and some of the other folks who've um worked with confabulation i've been um, inspired particularly in the last sort of six months to a year to reinvestigate myself as a performer of storytellers stories and um, and uh, have found that part of the craft art form um, really satisfying to to spend time in the ability to process your life in a way that makes people feel less alone is incredibly powerful 
and and to do that in a way that's articulate and hopefully funny and and those things is um yeah it's a gift it's really great let's let's talk about the volume knob more specifically we've been talking around it this whole time but the genesis of this podcast uh the central meeting point is the idea these are the songs that saved your life the songs that changed people's lives the songs that uh are key or pivotal or feature and what i found really remarkable is that it isn't the stories are not about the songs but the songs are are inseparable from the material are essential but not the story how do how do you balance that what what, what is the goal what is a great volume knob story um a great volume knob story is a great personal story where one of the characters is a song and okay. that that so both halves of that are hmm. important right a personal story has to be the teller as the protagonist and um that's why the songs the stories are not about songs they're about people and um i think the great thing about music is um if we accept the premise that personal storytelling is about empathy at a certain core music is uh, a means to get at the emotional core of humanity uh in ways that people wouldn't otherwise sometimes mm-hmm. be comfortable with I've, I've often said that you know the cool thing about some of these stories is is about how music allows people to put names to the, to their own the events in their lives to explain themselves to themselves but we have this ability to project our own internal lives on the music in a way that that i think is a really great catalyst to good personal storytelling the songs are that event that really you know helps them solve the key conflict but they don't have to be they they can be they can the song can sort of touch lightly on the water of the overall story in a way that sometimes is is quite elegant and then and then sometimes uh you know one of my favorite stories of all time that got that we did on the show um uh, Dr. Ray Christian, who's a storyteller in North Carolina, tells this hilarious story about um, about being in uh, in the army in Korea and falling in love with Toto, falling in love with Toto's Africa in Korea. And he and a buddy would sneak away to this apartment that they'd rented off base and listen to Toto over and over again. And then he gets, he gets discharged. He's away from Korea. He goes home to North Carolina and he tries to buy another copy of Toto Four, the record that Africa is on and hmm. thinks that his copy is broken because it plays faster. And what it turns out over time is he realizes that he bought a bootleg copy in Korea and his copy in Korea played slower and it's all about this idea that the the version that he had he'll never hear again it was uniquely his and then he layers on top of that his discovery about how um korean culture was like korean culture facing the gis was a funhouse mirror that really reflected american racism back wow. in he's an african-american man and the the way that the village was structured around the base reflected the way that they saw the racism in in the United States playing out in the real world. And so it can be really, I guess it's a long way of saying it. The the relationship between the storyteller and the song can be extremely complicated. um, Or it can just be like, I finally ran away from my abusive spouse. And this is the song that was playing in the car when I was running away, you know, and, and that's, that's Mm. a, that's an integrated story where the song itself is only background, you know, 
I love the way that it calls attention to the relationship we have with music without trying to to force a story, uh, if I can put I've often wanted to have stories from musicians talking about the crafting of their great works. And you and I have talked about this. Those stories don't really exist. The story you want is, well, actually, it was several weeks we track over track over track. What we really want are the stories that you're presenting. They're not the stories of the songs. They're stories about us with the song, in relation to the song. And I, I, I just think that's more, I think, both what the artists want and what we ourselves want. The artists want to know that they're affecting us, that they're influencing us and changing us. This is their art. And so the idea that it's promoting new art in the form of these stories is, is kind of beautiful. It's literally like we have this completed work that that is the song and the, the artist has put it out in the world. And, and I'm telling the stories of the ripples, you know, that that song has been is a, is a rock that's been thrown into a pond. And each one of these, not every ripple is very interesting, but some of these ripples are, are beautiful, complete human sometimes hilarious sometimes scary stories what, what do you have next what what is coming up for you you've just wrapped one season do you have a plan for next i've got some brilliant returning guests coming out some folks from montreal and then new york and so that's that's a that's a thing and then you and i and everyone else in your team in confabulation are producing this great show uh in may which i'm really excited about so that's an opportunity to be a producer and and um and to bring these kind of stories out to a confabulations audience, which is really great. I'm trying to to wedge as much um, storytelling in my life as is sort of mental health wise possible in the next year. So hopefully, uh, hopefully, if, if if listeners if listeners to the confabulation podcast are interested in storytelling, they can they can keep an eye on on both the volume knob and then some of the stuff that'll spin out of the of the podcast through the next year or so. We will. We are very much looking forward to having you back soon. So thank you so much for this. Thank you for the story. See you soon, Keith. Thanks, Matt. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Keith. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for listening. We'll see you in a couple of weeks. Confabulation, the podcast, is produced and edited by Deb Vanslet. Thank you, as always, to our sponsors, the Canada Council for the Arts, and the Conseil des Arts de Montréal. 